Good morning, church family. How are we doing this morning? All right? Two people are doing good. There we go. All right. Who's heard the phrase, in the world, not of the world? Like, a lot, right? We hear that phrase all the time. So that's going to be the title of the message this morning, in the world, not of the world. But I put some question marks. And we're going to, we're going to explain why. In the world, not of the world. All of us here today, we live in the world, right? We're not immune to struggles or suffering, sickness or poverty. And yet we talk about this idea of living joy-filled lives for Jesus. And sometimes, you know, I feel like we go through the motions, like we're, we're supposed to be living joy-filled lives, but we sort of think that that's, that's not something you can really do, right? Because, I mean, we're in the world. What a lousy place to be, right? We're here on earth, and yet we're called to be in Christ while we're here on earth. So this morning, I want to explore this idea some more. More importantly, we're going to look at the scriptures, and I want to point out something that many of us, I think, overlook. That this phrase is, is misunderstood, and so as a result, it's misapplied. And certainly, there's some truth to the notion that we are in the world, not of the world. But I think that's probably not the best way to express that idea. Because, as I've said before, when, you know, all, all theology is pastoral theology at some point. It has to do with the way we engage one another, with the way we engage the world. And so, when, when scriptures, when this scripture in particular, particular, this idea is misapplied, I think we end up fighting against the people we're supposed to be fighting for. We're called to impact the world for Jesus. We're called to do it with him and with one another. That's why CFC exists. That's why the church with a big C exists. That is why we are here, to impact the world with the gospel. Not just the pastors, not just on Sunday. All of us, all the time. That's our mission if we're followers of Jesus. David Livingston, the great missionary, said this, God, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Only sustain me. And then he says this, which is maybe the toughest part. And sever any tie in my heart, except the tie that binds my heart to yours. God, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Any burden, God, that you want to lay on me, just sustain me, strengthen me. And sever any tie, any, anything that, that, that pulls me in one way or the other except the tie that binds my heart to yours. So I want to encourage you this morning because it doesn't matter our yesterday. It doesn't matter our past. It doesn't even matter our this morning. God wants to meet you. God will meet you here in this place. You know, church can be something we do, you know, as part of our week. And it can become routine or common. But meeting with God should never be routine or common. And we should always leave here with the expectation that we're going to be a little bit different, that God's going to change our heart a little bit more. 
See, we talk a lot about obedience and surrender, and God wants us to be obedient, but what he wants is our heart and our trust. See, if, if obedience is just a result of guilt or compulsion, then that's religion. But if obedience is a result of our heart and our trust given to God, that's, that's the gospel. That's a life for a life. Jesus wants to take your burden and give you peace. He wants to meet you with grace and mercy and love and restoration, but we need to come like a child, dependent and surrendered to our Heavenly Father, not putting on airs, not putting on a mask, not pretending that we got it all together, but needy. Lord, I need you. Father, I need you. And you is my peace and my strength and my security. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to talk about that. Because this is the day that the Lord has made, church, today. It's a gift. And so let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? And so I pray each of us to fill with gratitude what the Lord's done and continues to do. It's amazing to see, to hear so many testimonies of God working in our lives and in our hearts. And here's his promise, right? This is just not, I'm, this is not words that I have to encourage you. This is a promise from the Lord that he will, he who began a good work in, in us will continue until the day of Christ Jesus, right? He's going to keep working. So if we get discouraged and we feel like we want to give up, just remember that he's going to continue that good work in and through us. So before I pray, I want you to greet one another. And I want you to say this, because sometimes, you know, Sometimes, you know, it's like, it reminds me, you, you tell like your, your kid, you know, do something like, I don't want to do it. Sometimes you just got to decide. So I want you to look at your name. I want you to say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Go ahead. Come on, tell somebody. Doesn't matter if you feel like it or not. Today's the day. I will rejoice. I don't want to rejoice. No. Come on. That's right. Father, we meet you here in this place because you meet us here in this place. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a spirit to receive your truth this morning. By your power, your presence, your word, God, we are grateful for who you are, Lord. We're grateful to have you in our lives. So, Father, would you have your way? And would you give us hearts like children, God, dependent upon you, seeking after you for our security, protection, for our peace and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be reading from the book of John, who likes to remind us he was the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is kind of, you know, cool. We'll be like, oh yeah, I'm Jesus' favorite. Hi, I'm, my name is Brian. I'm Jesus' favorite, right? But certainly John was one of Jesus' best friends and his inner circle spent a lot of time with him. And so this phrase, right, in the world but not of the world. If you spent any time around Christians, any time in church, we've heard that. And it's not wrong. It, it's misunderstood. And again, as I said, as a result, I think it's misapplied. And so when we, when we misunderstand and misapply it, we take one of two positions, I think. Either we get really defensive all the time, or on that side of things, we withdraw. 
So we can get really defensive, always feel like we're, we're, we're put on the defense, always feel like we have to, you know, sort of get that in that, that position of, of having to defend. Or we just withdraw altogether from the people that aren't like this because we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're not like them, right? Or we take the other position and we become a little pharisaical. We become a little, a little aggressive, a little, a little arrogant. And again, we, we maybe fight against the people we're supposed to be fighting for. Here's a secret. Unsafe people are going to behave like the unsafe people. We spend a lot of time talking about that and criticizing the world for being the world. But I think we should be more concerned when we behave like the unsafe people. When we, the church, that's what we should really be worried about. And instead we can become real insular. And we can just look around and say, oh, the world's getting so bad out there. And, and Jesus is like, when's the last time you, know, you looked in here? Because, you know, I think probably one of the most profoundly theological books C.S. Lewis ever wrote is Screwtape Letters. And where he points out there is, you know what the strategy of the enemy always is? To keep your and my focus on somebody else. And it, and, and it could be that there's real sin in their lives and that there's an actual, there's really something to focus on. But more often than not, we spend more time criticizing unsaved people for being unsaved or our neighbors, the other people in the church. And then we, we don't spend enough time speaking truth to that person in the mirror. We give that person a pass. See, I, I think this sermon can be a timely and, and practical help because I don't think we're necessarily ill-intentioned. I think we're misguided. Because culture is shifting as it always has and it, as it always will away from the things of God. And we are in an increasingly self-absorbed and self-obsessed and self-exalting culture. And at this point, all the, all the experts, all the psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health experts, everybody has said that social media has a harmful effect, that it promotes this idea of everybody look at my idea, everybody look at what I think, what I say. And it's a very self-exalting thing where we continue to think it's all about us. And so oftentimes in the church, we can either get so caught up in the, in the environment and the culture around us that we don't, we're not set apart at all. We're not distinct at all. Or we can become so antagonistic toward culture that we withdraw ourselves and we become our own little subculture, our own little safe world in the church. In the world, not of the world. We say things like that to separate ourselves from the very people God has called us to be salt and light to. And I understand that because there's a tension, right? Because sometimes, you know, we're mocked for our faith. Sometimes to friends and family, we seem like abnormal, right? And that can make us feel maybe like uncomfortable or maybe insecure sometimes. And so we don't really know how to, how to handle that. So we get aggressive and we fight. We get defensive and we make excuses or we withdraw. And, and I submit to you that that's not what Jesus intend for, intends for us to do. See, some people think we're crazy, that's true, but they killed Jesus for his ministry. And so I know that it is tough 
to love a world that desperately needs Jesus and at the same time mocks him. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross, for the resurrection, for the person of Jesus, for the message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make any sense. But to those of us being saved, it is the power of God. You know, I'm, I'm studying for my degree and I'm getting my degree in apologetics and the biggest philosophical obstacle to the belief in God is the, the notion of evil. And people will say, well, that's a problem. Evil is the problem. It's a problem. But you know what the answer is? The cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is God's answer to the evil in the world. That he sent his son who was innocent and perfect to die in our place so that we would be made righteous. And his son rose again to prove who he was and to give us life. And not just life, but life abundantly. A life of purpose and meaning and value. Yes, there is evil in the world. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the answer to that evil. It is the best apologetic there is. And so we are the church. And my definition of the church is the body of Jesus Christ purposed together for doing God's will in the world. The body of Jesus Christ purposed together for doing God's work in the world. It is not a group of people who gather on a Sunday. It is not just the pastors and leaders. It is all of us. If we are Christians, we are ambassadors, and we are missionaries, and we have been called. Paul says we've been given the gift of reconciliation, and we receive that. That's great. I'm reconciled to God. But he doesn't stop there. He says we're given the ministry of reconciliation. And so if I were to pass out, if I gave you a stack of $100 bills and I said, hey, I want you to go and I want you to bless people. I want you to pass these out. And you're like, nah, I'm, I'm keeping these. That's not, that's not right. But what do we do with the gospel message? Oh, I've been reconciled. I'm reconciled. You're not reconciled. No, Paul says, you've been given, we've been given the ministry, the responsibility, the opportunity to be instruments of his redemption. Amen? So back into our title, right? Because our vision is to see the gospel of Jesus Christ change everything. Our hearts, our minds, our lives, our family, our church, our neighborhood, our world. And in order to do this, we've got to get this stuff right. In the world, not of the world. That's how most of us read and interpret this statement. We are in the world. It's our starting point. It's our unfortunate reality. Here we are in this lousy world. We've got to spend a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of focus to not be part of it. We're in the world, but we don't want to be part of the world. John Piper says it this way. In this way of configuring things, the starting place is our unfortunate condition. We are in the world. And our mission then, it appears, is to not be part of it. So the force is moving away. In other words, we're supposed to take all of our energy as Christians to just not be like the world. Because they're bad and we're good. And, and we don't necessarily say it like that, but our actions oftentimes portray it like that to people. We're frustratingly stuck in the world, so let's spend all of our energy, all of our focus, all of our effort to not be part of it. 
Now, there's no doubt there's, there's, there's some truth in that. There's no doubt that the emphasis is needed. There's no doubt that we are supposed to be distinct from culture. But I think, and I think you'll agree, there's a better way to say it. There's a, there's a different way to say it. And again, it doesn't really matter what John Piper thinks, and it certainly doesn't matter what I think. It matters what Jesus thinks. It matters what God words, God's word says to us. And so turn with me to John 17. And on this verse in particular, we're going to see where Jesus uses these categories in the world, but not of the world. And we're going to look at his perspective on this. And I want to point out that here in the text that we have, Jesus is praying. And Jesus prayed a lot. But here, Jesus is praying for us. He's interceding, then and now, to the Heavenly Father for us, for you and I. Can you imagine that? How profoundly moving is that? That Jesus Christ prays for you and prays for me. We have a high priest, church, who intercedes. Hebrews 4, verse 14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. That's an encouragement. In other words, listen, no matter what you're going through, no matter if you're wavering in your faith, you have a high priest. You have Jesus Christ who's praying for you, who's interceding for you, who's walking with you. Hold firmly to the faith you profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. Verse 16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, I have a friend, I remember talking to him one time, and, and I was going through some stuff, and he's like, well, have you, you know, have you prayed? And I'm like, you know, if I were God, I wouldn't answer my prayers. I was like, there's like kids that are sick, there's people that are going through stuff. I've had every opportunity, I've had every privilege, and I'm my own worst enemy. I keep just making bad choices. What I, I can't pray. You know why I can't pray? Because I don't feel worthy of, I, I wouldn't want to hear my prayers. I would be like you again. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He looked me dead in the eyes. He goes, who cares what you think? Who cares what you think? You think our prayers are effective because of us, or you think our prayers are effective because of him? See, the enemy doesn't care why you don't pray. The enemy just cares that you don't pray. But scripture says, let us boldly approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Why? In us? No, in him. In him, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so I pray that speaks to us this morning. So now on to our main section of text. Again, this is on the evening of the crucifixion. This is a continuing discourse from the Last Supper, and we're going to go back and look at that. But we're in John 17. I'm going to start in verse 14 through 19. I'm going to read through it. I'm going to put, uh, point some stuff out. I have given them your word, 
And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Now the first thing we notice is this. Being not of the world isn't the destination verse. It's the starting place. Being not of the world is not the, the focus, it's not the emphasis, it's, it's where we are. Look at Jesus' references to his disciples being not of the world. Verse 14, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The, the, it is written to believers. That's, that's our, the observation of our condition now. We are in Christ. We are set apart. We are not in the world. And again in verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. John 15, 19 says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Now we read world in the New Testament, and that's the Greek word cosmos. It refers to the inhabited earth and the people who live on the earth. And in this context, it's the system that operates separate from God, that functions apart from God. 1 John 5, 19, we see, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, right? So in this definition, the world means the system ruled by sin. And so we can readily appreciate Christ's claim that believers, that our condition, our starting point, is we're no longer in the world. We're no longer part of that system. We've now been set apart. We're not bound by the principles of the world. In addition, we're being changed into the image of Christ, which causes our interest to the things of the world to become less and less as we mature. And so believers in Christ are simply in the world, physically present, but we're not part of it. We're not part of its value system. As believers, we are set apart. My goal at the end of this sermon is that every time you hear somebody say, in the world, not of the world, in your mind you say, no, I'm set apart and sent. There's a big difference to be set apart, to start with being not of the world, and then to recognize, and we're going to look at Jesus' prayer, that we're sent. That in Jesus, Jesus didn't just pray, I, I pray that you keep him out of the world, that you take him out of the world. In fact, he prays the opposite. He prays that we're sent into the world, but he prays that we're protected, that we're set apart from the evil one, that we're sanctified, is the word. Sanctify them in your truth. Set apart for something. So we are set apart, and we are sent. Being in the world means we can enjoy the things of the world, the creation God's given us, but we're not to immerse ourselves in it. We don't live for those things. We don't chase after the world's values or the world's pleasures. It's no longer the priority as it once was. But instead we worship Christ. Our treasure is in his presence. Now, I've used this illustration before, but C.S. Lewis says it's like we're a bunch of children making mud pies in, in the slums, and we're so proud of our, of our mud pies. 
And meanwhile, the Lord has mansions for us. He has eternal, things of eternal significance and eternal value. And we focus on temporary stuff that's all going to be gone. And we're content with it. And, and C.S. Lewis is like, if we only knew, if we only had an eternal perspective, spiritual eyes, so we can enjoy creation, enjoy God's blessings, enjoy relationship, all these things that God's given us, but they're not ultimate things. They're not priorities. And so we can agree that Jesus doesn't want us to be in the world, of the world. He wants us to be set apart. And we see when he says he himself is not of the world and his disciples are not of the world. That's where that phrase comes from, that in but not of. That's where the emphasis comes from. And it's not entirely wrong, right? I mean, we understand it. Again, I don't think we're, we're ill-intentioned, but because we misunderstand it, we misapply it. And we focus all our attention on not being like the world to the point where we either attack them or we withdraw from them. And that's not the point here. It's not where things are moving toward, but where they're moving from. He is not of the world. Begins by saying that followers are not of the world. Verse 18 says this. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The very thing that Jesus prays for is the opposite, is we do the opposite so often. We withdraw. We move away. And Jesus is saying right here, you sent me into the world and I'm sending them in the world. And don't miss this, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So the very place where this phrase comes from, this in the world, not of the world, it's a very different sort of an understanding when you look at the text. And when you see where the impetus is not that we withdraw, but that we exist, that our identity is as of those set apart to then be missionaries. See, we always think missionaries is like, you know, flying across the ocean to somewhere else. But missionaries, again, is walking across the street and knocking on your neighbor's door. Being Jesus to people who don't know Jesus. Very clearly, we've been sent into the world. Jesus is not asking his father to take us out of the world, but to send us in. So again, a better way to say this is that we are set apart and we are are sent. We are set apart and we are sent. Jesus' assumption in John 17 is that those who've embraced him, those who've identified with him are not in the world that because of his presence in our lives, because of our trust in him, that that's what sets us apart. Not our behavior, but our very identity in Jesus, that we've been crucified to the world, that we've been raised to new life, and we've been set free, but we've been set free that we may set others free, that we may be his instruments. And this command is that we're sent into the world on a gospel mission, that we're called each one of us to make disciples, that Jesus' true followers have not just been crucified, but they've been raised to life, that we've been rescued from darkness and to the light, not merely to flee the darkness, but to guide our steps as we go back in to rescue others. So Christians are not in the world, 
but they're sent, they're not of the world, but they're set into it. So set apart and sent. Live set apart and live sent. Not either or, but both and. And we're not sent alone. In fact, earlier in chapter 13 and 14 and 15, don't forget, in chapter 13, it's his last supper. This is his meal, an intimate gathering with his friends, with his closest friends. We had Chris Boudreaux. Uh, last night, there was a group of us that Chris took three days. It was a beautiful thing. It was such a, an outpouring of love. And, and he, for three days, he cooked, and he had a spread of all the food they'd have in the, in the first century. And, and everything we ate was stuff from that period of time. And we had locusts with honey. True story. I had one to try it. Stacy and my wife had like four. They were snacking on them like, like Cheetos. I don't I don't. Locusts and honey, but we did, and we had all, it was beautiful. It was just an amazing time. But it was, it wasn't just the food. And it, we had like, we had plates, you had to, you know, dip your bread, and there was no utensils. It was very like original. Jamie was going to wash everybody's feet, but I don't know, he, but maybe next time. But it, was, it wasn't just the food, right? It was the whole, it was the intimacy, it was the friendship. It was the sharing together. Even the bread, it, was, it wasn't cut bread, you broke a piece off, you gave it to somebody else, right? And this was the context. This is what Jesus was doing. This, this dialogue, this prayer, what, what he did in John 13 was he washed the disciples' feet because he figured, you know, I've told you guys stuff, you've watched me do stuff, but you still don't get it. So and to me, one of the most profound actions in all of Scripture, Jesus kneels down and washes their feet. And, and so we see that in chapter 13. That was an example. And then in John 14, Jesus explains fully who he is. And that people can only come to the Father through him. That's an explanation. And then he tells the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit. And that's empowerment. So he's given his disciples, he's given us an example. He's given us an explanation, he's given us empowerment. So when we are set apart and sent, we are set apart and sent with him and with one another. Not alone. Now, the disciples have all they, we have all we need, the conditions necessary to produce the fruit. So then Jesus is saying, here's what I expect. Here's what you must repeat over and over again to bear fruit. And the fruit is what? what it's a, what's it all about? What is it that we're called to do? Live as witnesses for Jesus Christ. Be salt and light. What does Jesus expect? Well, here in John 15, this includes the last words Jesus spoke to his disciples before the crucifixion. He's likely walking in the garden, sees the vines in bloom, uses, as he often did, uh, an illustration, creates a parable from what he sees. It's a, teachers even now, they know the best way to identify phrases is, is you use pictures. That's how you help people develop memory. So Jesus is using an illustration as he preaches and teaches. And he speaks to the disciples before the crucifixion. It's important we realize, again, it's a continuing discourse. At his last supper, prior to this, we, he washed their feet, we just said. He explained the way to the Father. He promised the Spirit. And it's important because I believe these instructions are what enable and equip us to fulfill the Great Commission. To fulfill what he asked us to the last words before his ascension. 
And it's interesting because now Jesus is resurrected. They see him. He, he walks with them and they recognize who he is now. There's no question. And what's their, what's their view on that? Well, hey, what are you going to do about my situation? Jesus' last words before his ascension, that's what he's addressing. You see it in Acts 1, chapter 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by our own authority. They're asking about, hey, what about the kingdom now? So Jesus, we know who you are now. And so now, what about my situation? What about our situation in the world? You know, because you know what they want? We don't want to be of the world, Jesus. We want to be set apart. We want to be different. Are you going to take us away from all this now? It's a very human response, right? But Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority. And he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be equipped. You will be enabled. You will be gifted. And you know what you're equipping and enabling and gifting is for? Not you. Never you. It's to glorify him and it's for everybody else. He says that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Power for what? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You are empowered to witness. You are set apart to be sent. My prayer is not that you're taken out of the world. In fact, I'm praying that you're sent into it, but that you're protected from the evil one. That you live in the world. That you live set apart but that you don't remove yourself, but instead you see yourself as a missionary. John 15, I'm going to read from the New King James because it uses the word abide, and I love that word. It's one of my favorite words, abide, because it's so dynamic. It's not static. It's not one time. It has different definitions. To abide means to belong to, to remain. My favorite definition is to make your home in. And I just think, how encouraging is that? That we're called to make our home in Jesus. You know, forget about everything that you got going on, everything that you think church and Christianity is supposed to be. And Jesus calls us to make our home, to find our peace and our joy and our strength in him. To abide. Before we can be set apart and sent, we've got to learn to abide in Jesus. Before we can live joy-filled lives, we've got to learn to abide in Jesus. If you've come here for anything else, don't miss that. Don't miss what Jesus is saying to us in John 15. Abide in me. Find your home in me. I invite you into a relationship with me. That's the, that's the source of all of it. If you have this, you have nothing. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Yeah, you can do some things. You can accomplish some temporary stuff here. But you're not going to have an eternal impact. You're not going to have a spiritual impact. You're not going to have a lasting impact. It's not going to matter if it's not for him and with him. And Jesus is going, if, if, if you're not, if I'm not the source, if you don't abide in me, you can't do anything. Now, should that discourage us because we've got we to gotta be perfect? No, it should encourage us because the perfection is not in our doing. All we need to do is be in him. 
And that means sometimes we've got to repent and we've got to surrender and we've got to be just like a little kid, like, Dad, I'm sorry. You think when my kids say, when they mess up, you think when they say, Dad, I'm sorry, I'm like, well, I don't love you anymore. I'll get out of here. No, I'm just like, come here. I love you. You're accepted. I want to help you so next time maybe you don't do that same thing again because I want what's best for you. Man, that we would only approach Jesus like children. And then he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. It doesn't say maybe if you abide in me, you're going to bear fruit. It doesn't say if you abide in me and then you also do all these things you're supposed to do, you'll bear fruit. It doesn't say if you abide in me and you're really gifted, then you'll bear fruit. It's a promise. You don't have to take my word for it. It's right there. I don't know what your translation says, but what I see here, it says, he who abide in me and I in him bears much fruit. That's it. For apart, for apart from me, you can do nothing. That means if we focus all our time and effort and energy on abiding on him, on just being in and with Jesus, inevitably, that's going to bear fruit. You know what that fruit is? We're going to live joy-filled lives. Because if you're in love with Jesus, first of all, you can't help but fall deeper in love with him. And you know what else? If you're in love with Jesus, you can't help but love people differently. And I've said this a whole bunch of times that one of the prayers I pray more than anything else is, Lord, give me wisdom. And I'm sure my wife and people around me are very happy I pray that prayer. She's probably saying, keep praying it. It's not working yet, but tarry, tarry, keep praying. And give me a heart like Jesus. Let me see people the way he sees them. And people think that's a nice prayer, Pastor Brian. But no, I pray that so often because when I look at I don't see people the way Jesus sees them. I don't. I don't see myself the way Jesus sees me oftentimes. But man, if we, can, if we can abide in Jesus, if we can love him radically, and then we begin to see other people differently, and that, that does bear fruit, you can't not bear fruit. You know what the best testimony is? You ever see somebody, and you just watch them, and like, I think they're a Christian. I mean, they're... And then you find out they are, and you're like, I knew it, Right? And I think if I'm honest with myself and I'm like, I wonder if people see me that don't know me, if that's what they think. I don't know. I mean, sometimes if I'm, I don't know. But what a testimony, right? They don't have to open their mouth. It's just something about them. That's, that's fruit. When you live with that kind of joy, you know how attractive that is to people who are living joyless, hopeless, anxious, aimless lives who are struggling to hold on and they see you and there's just something about you. You know, First Peter says, you know, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. When people ask, the assumption is that, hey, you live that way, someone's going to be like, what is it about you? And then be prepared to give a defense. Be prepared, prepared to give an explanation. Be prepared to talk about that Jesus because they're going to ask you. That's the result. That's the fruit of abiding. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. 
As my Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. I think, go home when you're by yourself and read John 15. Just read through this and tell me you're not overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And I love this part. I love verse 11. If I would have started this and said, who wants to just be a joy, just filled with joy? Everybody would say, yes. Now again, think about this because we just, we read the, the Bible sometimes we forget the, the context. Jesus is with his closest friends. He's had a meal with them. He's washed their feet. He's taught them He knows he's going to the Father. He knows they have to continue on ministry. He knows they're discouraged. He knows they're confused. And he's saying, guys, look, if you need to get anything right, remain in me. Remain in my love. Stay connected to me the way I was connected to you and the way I'm connected to the Father. Everything else in ministry is an overflow of that. If you don't get that, nothing else matters. You know, I meet with pastors all the time and they always talk about, you know, the, the church and they share and the struggles and no church is perfect. But they're like, you know, it seems like God's doing an amazing thing, you know. And, and that people always say, like, what's the, like, what's the secret? What's the method? What's the strategy? Like, everybody loves vision and strategy stuff, right? I'm like, I love Jesus with every fiber of my being. Not perfectly, I'm a mess, right? But boy, I love Jesus, He's changed my heart. He's set me free. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be alive, let alone stand in him. I love Jesus with every fiber of my being. And I love people. And I, and I need to love people better. And that's it. And I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to be a culture and a community where that, that's what it looks like. That's what takes place. With the community groups, we have the sign-ups. Today in the gym, if you've, especially if you've never been part of a community group, the New Testament was written to little communities, to groups of believers. Why? Because they meet each other's needs, because they make relationship, because they pray together, because they read the word, because they, they're, they're helpful to each other, they serve together. That it's, it, they become mini churches. Jesus says this in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you. These words I have told you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Saying, guys, no matter what happens, no matter how bad things get, I'm telling you guys this stuff. I'm telling you to remain, to find your, your center and your direction and your joy and your peace and your strength in me because that's the only way your joy can remain And I love that phrase because most of us, we have joy and then we don't and then we do. And I'm not saying we get this perfect, but I'm saying Jesus is saying, you know what the answer is? Abide in me. And I love that he says that. So my joy may remain in you and so that your joy may be full. So there's not a single person in this room that doesn't want to live with the fullness of joy. But we keep trying and we keep doing all the things we think are going to bring us joy. And if we're lucky, they bring us pleasure for a minute. But that's not joy. And C.S. Lewis says, if we really experience true joy, we're going to exchange it for all the pleasure in the world. But pleasure is often easily attainable. Nothing wrong with pleasure, unless it's the pursuit of that on top of what God would have for us. 
These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. What happens when we live with the fullness of joy? We are attractive to the world. We live in such a way that just the way we live, the way we interact, the way we, the way we talk to people, they know that we are sent and lives are changed by the Christ living in us. We talk about abiding in Christ, about being in the world, not of the world, about being set apart and sent. It begins with abiding. If you're not abiding in Jesus, we don't want you to be sent. Right? doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly, but it means if you're ineffective in your ministry and your life, don't try to focus on just fixing that. Try to be like, I need to abide. No matter where you are right now, no matter what you got going on, Jesus is going, come to me if you're weary. And I'm going to give you rest. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the yoke you've put on you is, is not that. Abide. Abide and be set apart to be sent. That's the way. I believe this tells us how we ought to live successful Christian lives and be the church God intends for us. The thrust of the first half of John 15 is abiding in Christ, and that result of abiding is love for him and one another, and it increases. And it's critical to understand what it means and how we can abide in order to fulfill our purpose as a church. And these six verses of John 15, Jesus uses the word abide ten times. And I've said my, my favorite definition to make your home, to, to remain, it can mean to tarry, to wait for, to be held, to to be, to be kept, to belong in. To abide in Jesus means that you belong in Jesus. It's where you're supposed to be. If you want to have victory in your life, if you want fulfillment, if you want your life to have purpose and meaning and value, if you want peace and joy and to be effective in ministry, if you want the power to be set apart and then sent to be salt and light, abiding is the starting point. It means belonging to Christ. In John 6, 56, it says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains, abides in me, and I in him. In this point, it's, it's preached to unbelieving Jews. The starting point there is an abiding that leads to salvation. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe you, you've never even trusted in Jesus. You don't, you don't belong to Jesus. And he invites you. doesn't matter what yesterday looked like. doesn't matter what this morning looked like. If you're done trying to do it on your own, Jesus invites you. In fact, Jesus' entire ministry is an increasing series of, of invitations. You know, believe in me. Trust in me. Come to me. And then ultimately abide in me. Make your home in me. Remain in me. That's where you live. But maybe you're here and you haven't put your trust in him. You haven't heard the trust me, the follow me, the believe in me. I don't know where you are. But I pray that you believe in Jesus and not just believe the truth of who he is, but give your life to him, trust in him. And the second meaning is what we read in John 15, 4. He's talking about an abiding in the secondary sense. He's talking to believers. This is sanctification, to sanctify again. That was Jesus' prayer. To sanctify is to be set apart for a purpose. So now the second abiding is now you're, you're sanctified. Now you're set apart in Christ to be sent 
into the world to be a witness. In Bruce Wilkinson's book, Secrets of the Vine, he says this, abiding means we seek and we long for and we thirst for and we wait for and we see and we know and we love and we hear and we respond to a person, Jesus Christ. It's relational. It's intimate. It's where it all begins. It's what we're invited to. And believers will produce some fruit. In Titus, the word tells us we're saved in order to do good. Titus 3, remind the people to be obedient, ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to always be gentle toward everyone. I don't know about you, but for a lot of people outside the church, if you said, hey, what do you think of Christians? would be like, they're so gentle. I don't think so. At one time, too, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions, passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. He's going, hey, remember? Remember when this was us? Remember what we did? But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saves us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, he saved us so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having hope of eternal life. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Things that are excellent and profitable for everyone. So how we do abide, we strive to live for Jesus. It means we trust him. It means we love him. And as a result, we surrender and obey and we repent when we fail. It means we pray. Prayer is communication. Communication is two-way. It means talking, but it also means listening. It means we pray. It means we read the Bible. We read it to study it, to know it, and we devote with it. We read it devotionally, to meditate on it, to pray with it, to have the word in our heart. We serve others. We move outside of ourselves in our comfort zone, and we serve and we give. You know, Talking about loving other people and wanting to live for other people, it's all hypothetical. And we can, we can, you know, we can do that hypothetically. The problem is we've got to do it actually. You know, there's a quote I remember I read, and it said, in, uh, in, in, theory, uh, in theory, practice and theory are the same thing, but in practice they're different. Right? So we, we have this idea of it, and we think that if we know it, that we somehow implemented it. And so we know we got to serve, we know we got to give, we know we got to love, but we actually got to do it. And sometimes we just wait, and we're going to wait for the best opportunity. Well, I'm going to serve. Uh, I, you know, I paint cars. And so when they need a car painted, no. You know when you're going to serve when you look around and there's a need. And guess what? There's always a need. You know what should motivate you to serve? That somebody needs to be served. I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, you know, the question that the Levite and the priest asked was, if I stop to help this person, how is it going to affect me? What's it going to cost me? How is it going to inconvenience me? 
But the question the Samaritan asked is if I don't stop to help this person, how's it going to affect them? And so we've got to move outside of our own self-centered living. And you know the way we do that is we serve. We begin walking in that. We fellowship with other believers, join a community group, get plugged in. We abide when we are in his will in a given moment. We abide when we are obedient to the promptings of the Spirit. Abiding isn't some super spiritual process that you only do on a Sunday, or if you're a pastor, or if you're in ministry. It's what you do if you're in Jesus. We abide when we're in deep relationship with him, when he's our master and he's our friend. His purpose is not that we do more for him, but that we spend more time with him. As a result, inevitably, we'll do more for him. If we don't abide, here's what happens. We'll grow confused as to his leading. You know, eventually it's hard to hear that voice gets, gets you know, the, the voice of God, you know, the things of God, they get muffled, they get, you know, drowned out by all the noise, all the distractions, all the other stuff, and it gets harder and harder to hear his voice. I've heard people say, I don't think I can ever find my way back. It's like, well, you can't, but all you have to do is say, Lord, I'm lost. And there he is, inviting you home in him. If you don't abide, you'll struggle in your prayer life. Like I said, the enemy doesn't care why you don't pray, just that you don't pray. So I love when my friend spoke truth to me. I was all in my feelings. I don't feel like praying. Who cares what you feel like? You do what you feel like your whole life. That's why you are where you are. What about the word of God? What about the truth of God? What about the promises of God? We don't abide in him. We lose our joy and our peace. We find ourselves striving in our own power. Why aren't things working out? Well, because you thought being a follower of Jesus was asking him to follow you. That's why. Hey, Jesus, you following me? Nope. No, you got this one all by yourself. I'm good. No, they're called to follow him. John 15, 5 makes it clear. Jesus is the vine. We are dependent on the branches. We need him apart from me. You can do nothing. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Success as a church isn't defined by multi-million dollar beautiful buildings or huge congregations. It's defined by a love that people have for Jesus, which manifests itself through their love for one another and their love to the lost. In Romans 12, Paul tells us, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. And I love this phrase, cling to what is good. Cling, hold on tightly. Because sometimes it feels like everything in the world is trying to shake you off. But hold fast. Stand firm. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Church, I pray that you would give your life to Jesus. And then if you've done that, but you're just lost, you're just 
aimless and anxious, that you would abide, that you would remain, that you would return home in him. The altars are always open, and we'll pray with you. A genuine love for others is the result of an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what abiding is. And that love is our, is the church's answer. The gospel is the church's answer to the world's hatred. And I read this somewhere. It says, if we're surprised by the world's hatred, we don't understand what Jesus said. If we answer hatred with hatred, we don't believe what Jesus said. And if we answer hatred with love, we obey what Jesus said. I want you to stand and I want you to close your eyes. And I'm going to read the rest of Jesus' prayer in John 17. And I want you to just consider this because the first part of the prayer, he prayed for his disciples that were there with him. And here... Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, is praying for us, for you and for me. And I can't think of a more encouraging thing in the world than to ponder that thought. So if you would listen to these words, Jesus says, I am not praying just for these followers. I am also praying for everyone else who will have faith because of what my followers will say about me. I want all of them to be one with each other just as I am one with you and you are one with me. I want them to be one with us and then the people of this world will believe that you sent me. Then the world's people will know that you sent me. And they will know that you love my followers as much as you love me. Church, we are sent into the world to express the love of Jesus and to preach the gospel in word and deed so that people would come to know who he is. And so my prayer as we close and the altars are open is that you don't leave this place with a burden that you don't leave this place with a stronghold, but that you walk in the victory and the freedom and the fullness that Jesus attended, that we learn to abide so that we can be set apart and sent. In Jesus' name.